when I feel well-lived, it is when I'm in that realm of when I have purpose and vision and the mission is aligned and I feel fulfilled in the work that I'm doing. Does talking about your money make you cringe? Are you tired of fighting about finances? Do you want to stop sabotaging your financial happiness? Then you are in the right place. Welcome to Breaking Money Silence, a podcast series aimed at helping all of us talk more openly about money. Your host, Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, is a wealth psychology expert who is doing what she does best, speaking about taboo topics. International speaker, author, and founder of KBK Wealth Connection, Kathleen understands money and our relationship with it. Over the past decade, she has empowered thousands of people to break money silence at home and at work. Now, here is Kathleen. This episode is sponsored by Halbert Hargrove, an advisory firm that believes in the fearless pursuit of well-lived days and tomorrows. For 85 years, their advisors have worked to help clients reach their financial goals. And as fiduciaries, they act in the best interest of their clients at all times. For help with your well-lived life, visit halberthargrove.com. I am here today with Lindsay Lewis. She is the director and chair of the American College State Farm Center for Women and Financial Services. Prior to joining the college, Lindsay worked as a CFP practitioner, and we met recently at a CFP diversity summit that happened to be virtual, which proves you can network at virtual conferences. Uh, Lindsay and I share a passion for empowering women and girls, and especially our hope to have more women uh, in equality in financial services. So of course, I thought I had to have her on the Breaking Money Silence podcast. Welcome to the show, Lindsay. I am so thrilled to be here and appreciate the invitation more than you know. Oh, well, thank you very much. I'm really um, excited to talk about our topic today. You are part of a series called A Well-Lived Life. And what we're doing is talking to people from different perspectives about how they define a well-lived life and then digging a little bit deeper. So let's just start with what is your definition of a well-lived life? Yes, it is very interesting to think and contemplate on what that looks like. And for me, when I'm thinking about a well-lived life, I think it is when I am in a realm where I have purpose and mission driven in the work that I'm doing. And so I wear many hats. You know, I am a mom of two as well as a a partner to a spouse and also active in my church and run a full-time job and am working on a side project with other people. And so when I feel well-lived, it is when I'm in that realm of when I have purpose and vision and the mission is aligned and I feel fulfilled in the work that I'm doing. And it isn't always, you know, perfect in that regard, but it is, you know, when I am advocating for women in this space in my career and feel like we're making some improvements there. That's what I define as well-lived. And 
it's interesting because as a CFP practitioner, I, I didn't mention money once at the beginning of that. Yes, but... I was going to call you out and say, hmm, right. does money have anything to do with a well-lived life? Right. Which I think money is a wonderful foundation that provides you a platform to do the things that you love and so that you can get to that purpose-driven work rather than you know, the other work that you might be doing. And it's just, it's a wonderful catalyst and a great foundation that can help transform you so that you have the autonomy to do what you love. I love that word catalyst. That's cool. That money is a catalyst for your purpose and mission driven life. Absolutely. And I feel so blessed and humbled at the fact that I have a career and an opportunity that allows me that autonomy. And I have really spent a lot of this year studying, you know, systemic banking and other um, issues for other oppressed communities and trying to understand how to break barriers for them and acknowledging the privilege that I have been given in the work that I do. Yeah, I think that's great that you put that out there because certainly I am um, somebody who has privilege as well. And I think it's really important just to note that not everybody's in the position uh, that we are in. And I'm glad that you're working as am I to kind of really address those things and, and help out uh, and be an ally any way we can. Lindsay, we previously had a conversation and we talked a little bit about all the different influencers in terms of how people think and feel about wealth. And you mentioned that how you were raised being Mormon impacted how you view wealth and your role in creating it. Can you say a little bit more about that? Absolutely. I look back at my upbringing and I was in a very highly concentrated one theology of, of Mormonism. Most of us will refer to ourselves as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but you know, money is a part of a lot of conversations. Um, part of our theology is that we participate in a 10% tithing. And it's interesting because we believe that, you know, as we give back to the Lord, that we will also be blessed in our own lives. And the origin of the church um, and its financial background is is very interesting in the fact that a couple of decades ago, maybe a hundred years or so ago, the church was looking at, you know, closing its, not closing its doors, but financially being almost bankrupt and how now the church with all of its investments and philanthropic giving through, you know, members has over a hundred billion dollars of assets. It's interesting to see how their investments in the transformation of their financial picture has changed over time. And us as members really take being financially astute as part of our balance and part of our well-lived life. And we even have classes at our church around financial literacy or how to start a business and really want to provide our members the tool set and the keys necessary to you know, live their well-lived life, even from a monetary perspective and what we call like a temporal perspective. So it's been interesting with my upbringing because 
you kind of come from this super concentrated area of all one theology and one belief system and, you know, everyone giving from a tithing perspective. And I recently moved outside of Utah and now I look at things with a a different perspective and, you know, how I tithe is, you know, the reason I tithe is, is, is important as well. And it shouldn't just be a check the box and that I should be understanding of the reason why I want to do this. And as I teach my children, I also want them to have a belief system of why they want to give back to charities in a philanthropic way. So yeah, I think, go ahead. So help me understand, Lindsay. So with the kids, it's different because you're tying their values and the why to the tithing. Whereas when you grew up, that was not the case. I want to say the why was there, but I don't necessarily recall the reasoning. I think my parents probably had a why. I know that I grew up in a non-affluent household with a lot of children, so there are seven kids. And they always paid their tithing first, even if it was very, very tight from other monetary (laughs) obligations, right? And um, so that was kind of their commitment to the Lord, and they always instilled that. So anytime I would get allowance or money from family members, I would set aside 10% for savings, 10% for tithing, and then I could only live on or use the 80% remaining. And taking that into my financial picture now, but also with my kids, you know, making sure they understand why it's important to save or why we're giving to tithing or why we have that philanthropic component of our theology. So it sounds like what you're doing, which a lot of people are doing, uh, next generation and the generations to come, is you're really breaking money silence with your kids and being more overt and direct about the purpose of money and wealth and what your beliefs are and, and how that influences financial behaviors. Absolutely. I think, you know, opening the the window and allowing them to choose as well as having the knowledge of the reasonings why. And as they move forward, I want them to feel like they have a choice in the matter as well. I think when you come from highly concentrated theological upbringings, sometimes when you're reflecting back, you're thinking, was that a personal choice? Was that a subconscious choice? Was that, you know, something that I was taught? Is that something that is part of my beliefs? Is that an opinion? Is that doctrine? And so it's kind of doing this mental gymnastics of understanding, okay, where do I fit into this realm? And how do I break money silence for myself when it comes to my philanthropic giving, as well as as I instill this belief system in my children or other members of the community, how do I help them feel comfortable and confident with the decisions they're making with their philanthropic giving as well? So it sounds like you've done a lot of internal work around your relationship with your religion and how that impacts money. And you just mentioned that you moved recently where there are a bunch of different religions and it's not as concentrated. And I'm wondering 
How do you think in general, like if we were to broaden this out beyond the theology you were raised with and currently practice, how do you think a person's religion kind of impacts their relationship with money? And before you answer, I just want to say I used to teach a course at Bentley University for up and coming CFPs, and they had to fill out a questionnaire. And part of the questionnaire was, how has your religion impacted your relationship with money? And I have to tell you, 99% of the students said not at all. So I don't believe that to be true, but I'm curious your perspective because you've really thought about this. I'm shook by that response. Because <laughs> oh, it's amazing, isn't it? I think based on my upbringing, it was such a fundamental component of our conversations that it's hard for me to not think about it as I'm making money decisions, right? If I am allocating 10% of my money towards philanthropic giving, I really only have 90% left. And then if I'm also, you know, looking towards the future and saving at least 10% or 15%, then I'm really only living on, you know, 80 to 75% of what my total check was. So I think it has defined me. And I think perhaps in, you know, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or as Mormons, um, because tithing is a, a component of, our conversation with our leadership around our ability to enter, you know, the temple, which is one of our worship houses. And so the question is, are you a full tithe payer? And our interpretation is 10%. And so I think it is part of the conversation every time with philanthropic leaders. And so for other individuals not to have that lens or have how religion shape them. It's an interesting perspective, and I'm a novice for sure when it comes to other people's opinions or religious opinions. I actually thought a lot about it, and I used to poke at it as a professor. And I would say that I think it's part of the taboo of talking about religion in some religions, talking about religion connected to finance. And so it, it's, I don't, I think there's a lot that influences us. It may not be as direct as what you've experienced, but for instance, I am or was raised Catholic, and certainly there was a nobility of poverty. So if you got to a certain level of financial success, at least in the community I was raised, that it was never said overtly, but it certainly was implied that you better not get too full of yourself or, you know, you better, you know, give back. And the give back message, I think, is a really positive one and is certainly something I practice in my life. But the Shame might be a, a strong word, but there felt like there was some shame in actually being really financially successful. And so, you know, I think everybody's experience is different, anybody who's listening in, but it sounds like we both would agree that religion does impact your relationship with money, whether you're aware of it or not. And what I think is so cool about you is you've really spent some time contemplating and thinking about it so you can pass on what you want to pass on in terms of your beliefs to your kids in the next generation. How do you balance having the life you want to enjoy today with what you're going to need in the future? At Halbert Hargrove, we've spent decades working with our clients to help them build well-lived todays and tomorrows through financial services that align to their real life goals. We believe a well-lived life is about more than money. It's about what you want for your family, the causes that you support, your lifestyle now, and later. Check us out online at halberthargrove.com 
and schedule a call with a Helbert Hargrove advisor today. You also, it sounds like, thought a little bit about what a well-lived life is. So if someone's listening in and they want to figure out their definition of a well-lived life, especially if it's somewhat different than their parents, how would you recommend they go about doing that? That is a wonderful opportunity, but also sometimes difficult. As you mentioned, sometimes there is that shame and guilt and fear around living a life differently than your parents, especially if it involves a theology that could be different than what you were raised up in. But when I'm thinking about a well-lived life as an individual, as a CFP practitioner, as you know, a career woman, I think about kind of my purpose and my vision. And I would say from a very young age, I have had a nice idea of what I would want in the future. And so what I did is I would name my future self. So my future self is my grandmother's name. Her name is Eleanor. And so as I introduce myself to Eleanor today, what can I do to make Eleanor's life better? So when I'm thinking about, okay, what would make me feel fulfilled five years, 10 years, 20 years from now? How do I boil that down into components today? And for me, you know, making sure that I am being kind to others, that I am saving for the future, that I'm saving for my kids' future, so that when I become of age or I'm Eleanor, right, that I'm ready to, you know, hand over the torch and that I'm familiar with my future self. So there's been a lot of research around, you know, giving money to your future self. And when you give money to a complete stranger, a certain area of your brain lights up. And when you save for the future, the same area of your brain lights up as giving money to a stranger. So if, in a way, if I'm not really willing to give, you know, the individual across the street $50, if I'm not familiar with my future self, there's a lot of inertia of giving my future self $50. And so what I've done is I've kind of painted in my mind the picture of what I would want my future self to look like, sound like, feel like, her relationship with money, her relationship with you know, others with her children, et cetera. And then I'm just backtracking it to today and then having little easy bite-sized pieces. Okay, I can save 10% of my paycheck. I can, you know, give 10 minutes of my time to a charity. I could spend 15 more minutes with my kids playing with them. And so just trying to make it into little bite-sized pieces for this big holistic picture is really how I've been able to break down creating a well-lived life for people that maybe haven't experienced generational wealth, right? If you're the first in your family that has the opportunity and the privilege to earn a higher salary than previous generations, then perhaps you don't know what that looks like. And it's very difficult if it's different than your parents. And if you have theology and it's and it's different than your parents. It could look very different. But creating this future self and creating a relationship and a familiarity so that you know what you would envision has been extremely helpful for me. 
I love that. I love that concept of future self. Um, you know, in my coaching, sometimes I'll have someone visualize their future self, and it isn't necessarily always around money. Just be, you know, money is part of it because of the type of coaching that I do. It tends to be business coaching, sometimes wealth coaching. But what you're talking about is really being able to think fondly and and imagine that person who's your future self. And I, I'm familiar with some of that research, and I think that's such a great idea. The other thing I have to point out is that my mother's name was Eleanor. So I chuckled to myself when you said that that was your future self name, because I certainly have an image that comes up for me when you say that name as well. Now, I want to just talk quickly about the fact that you are an income-producing spouse with two kids you work outside the home. And I have that in quotes because we're all remote right now. And so, Lindsay, tell me, what was that like? Because I imagine that's different than how your mother spent her years, but uh, correct me if I'm wrong. So what is it like to, to be an income-producing spouse with two kids? And did you have to make peace with that? Or is that something that you've always felt uh, in alignment with? I will say I had wrestled with it at the beginning because most of the upbringing in our theology are stay-at-home parents or non-income-producing parents, especially for women. And, you know, working outside the home, you know, some people have their opinions that you're just greedy or you're trying to get a better life or, you know, you're putting money before your children. And from a doctrinal perspective, that's not true in our theology. We believe that husband and wife or partner or spouses are equal partners in the relationship. And so how I define it is different than majority of the women that I grew up around defined it. Based on circumstances, my my mom ended up being the income producing parent in our oh, household. Oh, she did. Uh-huh. Yes. And but my mom is uh what would they consider a convert to the Mormon church and so she wasn't raised Mormon. And so in our family, there are, of my seven siblings, there are three of us that are still active members. And so not everyone is Mormon. And then of my extended family, there are no members. And so it's interesting because all of my sister-in-laws work outside the home and my mom did. And even my grandmother, my grandmother, she was not a member of the Mormon church and she worked outside the home and my grandmother on my father's side worked outside the home. And so I've kind of had a little bit of a different perspective from, you know, a normal quote unquote Mormon theology lens, but it is sometimes challenging when you're kind you know, our defined roles as mother is in primarily in charge of the nurturing of children. And so you know, as a mom, if I send my children to daycare, am I still taking responsibility of nurturing my children? And for me, I am my best self when I have purpose and I'm feeling fulfilled and I do that within my career. And so I am a better mom when I have my children go to daycare and I'm able to work at my full-time job. And so for me, I just had made that decision and I own that decision. And I'm feel so fortunate that I have the, you know, support of my spouse and partner to give me the realm of autonomy when it comes over that. Um, But I know that there are some individuals that might be in, you know, spousal relationships where it might not be valued as much. And that's where 
I always want to be a voice and an advocate for those women because I have seen what it's like to, you know, be silenced or feel like you don't have the ability to fully express yourself in the way that you want to, or you have ambitions that are different than what you grew up. And I get asked all the time, I have two children, anecdotally, you know, Mormons have a lot of kids. And so people come up to me and they'll be like, so how many more kids are you going to have? And I say, I don't know the answer. And I could be finished having children with just two. And it's it kind of takes them aback a little bit because they're thinking, wait, aren't you going to have more kids? What are your roles and responsibilities? And so I just look at it differently. So when I'm looking at my daughter and I hope that she feels like she can live a well-lived life. I want her to define it the way that she wants to define it. And I think there are some baseline beliefs of honesty and integrity and, you know, giving people the benefit of the doubt and trying to be kind and Christ-like. I think those beliefs I'd love to help instill upon her. But if she thinks about certain things differently, I want to provide her that space and that autonomy to choose just like I would want that today for myself. I love that answer because the well-lived life is really something that's so personal. And, you know, what I'm hearing in today's conversation is how much your purpose and your mission and the fact that you are being true to you is really important. And I think if all women and men for that matter uh, could do that for themselves would, would probably live in a better world. Now, part of your mission is working at the Center for Women in Financial Services. And I would love for you to say a little bit about what you're up to there, because I think it's really awesome. And a little bit about where people can find out more information about the center. Absolutely. So in our center, we love to personify our mission, which is to promote, advocate, and advance for women in financial services through education, applied knowledge, and research. So we have a number of initiatives that follow those kind of buckets of areas. And so really what we want to do is to be an advocate for these women. We have workshops, we have office hours, we have webcasts, we have in-person events. We have so many opportunities. We're working on a scholarship fund, so women that want to pursue designations and increase their education and knowledge. We are all here for you. <laughs> That's what we're here for. And so you can find us at the Women's Center at theamericancollege.edu and feel free to connect with us on our social media channels. We are Women Working in Wealth. Um, there are a number of different platforms there. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Awesome. Well, listen, we'll put all those links in the show notes so it's easy for people to click through and connect with you, Lindsay. And I'm so honored to have had this conversation with you and to break money silence with you. And I really hope um, we get to continue the dialogue. Absolutely. I look forward to it. And I just encourage all women that come from different theology backgrounds to really think about their why and that you can break money silence, whether it's religious or personal upbringing, et cetera, and you have that space. Like You do have that autonomy to make that choice. Awesome. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you. 
This episode is sponsored by Halbert Hargrove, an advisory firm that believes in the fearless pursuit of well-lived days and tomorrows. For 85 years, their advisors have worked to help clients reach their financial goals. And as fiduciaries, they act in the best interest of their clients at all times. For help with your well-lived life, visit halberthargrove.com. Thank you for listening to Breaking Money Silence, hosted by Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, a wealth psychology expert, author, and founder of KBK Wealth Connection. If you like what you heard today, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app and leave a review. Also, share this episode with your friends and family. It is a great way to get the conversation started. For more money talk tips and information, or to hire Kathleen to speak at your next event, go to www.breakingmoneysilence.com.